I'd like to, again, welcome everyone this morning. Um, first service, we're the, the ones who responded to that alarm and without hitting the snooze button. I'm, pr I'm proud of us. Yeah, it takes a crazy person to do that sometimes. Um, and I want to welcome you all. And I really do uh, hope you all had a pleasant uh, 4th of July. Um, they were able to enjoy it with friends uh, and family and that you found time to reflect a little bit on what it means to be uh, a citizen of these United States. I hope that you felt uh, that love for your country that is in many ways so similar to the love that we feel for our families. Uh, you know, we rejoice in our family's successes as if they were our own, and we share in our family's pains likewise. We're always free as well to criticize those dearest to us, for no family is perfect, but such criticism should always be done out of love and a desire to see them built up. For if they fall, if our country falls, then we fall also. So I think the 4th of July helps to remind us of that. Before we begin the sermon then uh, properly, uh, let's go ahead and bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father God, we acknowledge your presence here this morning, Lord. We know that here in this church, this called out assembly, this group of people who are your body, Lord, that you have set aside in the world, that this is nothing like what the world has to offer, God. This is not merely a social club. This is not merely a gathering for some worldly purpose, Lord. This is a place where you are present, where you've promised to be present. So, Lord, we welcome your presence here. I pray for everyone in this room that your spirit would move in our hearts, Lord, and that whatever you've put it on my heart to say, that it would not be a matter of my eloquence or lack thereof, Lord, but it would simply be a matter of the presence of your spirit speaking to us this morning. I pray for that in all of our hearts, and I ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, Today's sermon came together in a rather interesting way. It's a little bit different from uh, some of the other sermons that I'm given. I did not feel comfortable categorizing it into a structure for you, which is why if you look at your bulletins, for those of you who have a bulletin, uh, I have uh, given you a gift of a luxurious, spacious, beautiful room to make whatever notes that you want. You could make doodles of me up here, and I would never know it. But um, I hope that for those of you who do benefit from taking notes, that um, you will have no shortage of material today. Uh, I hope, <laughs> those of you who know me, uh, you know, but really by the grace of our Lord, uh, I hope that it is the scripture and it is the spirit of truth that will speak this morning uh, more, than, more than myself. I. I know that the Word of God is alive and powerful, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of the spirit and the soul, of joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And I cannot know this morning how the words that I say will affect you. But I pray that whatever you feel, if indeed it is born of God and it is born of the Spirit, that you would not stifle it. You know, it may be that God has brought you here this morning to encourage you, 
It may be that He's brought you here this morning to convict you or even to offend you. It may be that you're here so that you can be filled with an awareness of His loving presence throughout every corner of the world. Whatever it may be, just know that He is here among us. The very Spirit of the Lord and where the Spirit is, there also is freedom. So the closest passage we have to a keynote verse uh, today it comes from Galatians chapter 2. I hope you guys are up on your sword drills because um, if you're not familiar with sword drills as a kid, if you ever did those where you had that verse and then psh, who can find it the quickest? Because um, we'll be rolling through a few of them. Uh, but the closest thing we have to what you could consider a keynote verse comes from Galatians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. It's what the, ba the basis of these, uh, the title for the sermon is. Uh, so in it, Paul makes the following statement. We'll use that as a bit of a springboard and go from there. Paul says this, For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul begins with the somewhat curious statement that he has died to the law through the law in order to live for God. But what does this mean? Well, the law represents the systematic aspect of humanity. See, it represents us in our natural state as we attempt to navigate and control life in ways we can predict and therefore plan around. Of course, Paul was trained as a Pharisee. Pharisees were experts in all the nuances of the Jewish religious traditions and obligations. He knew also that the Pharisees had multiplied the rules and the rituals associated with religious life to the point where they could exploit every loophole and maneuver around any overly demanding spiritual duty, all while appearing to be playing by the rules. Now, by the time of Jesus, this process had about run its course. The letter of the law had succeeded in, in virtually killing the Spirit through the scheming of the human heart. Paul had worked his way through the law enough to see its bitter and lifeless end a hellish system of corrupt self-justifications that could even go so far as to rationalize the murder of Christians in the name of God, as if it were an act of service to God. Now, he played out that life. He lived out that life, and he found it utterly empty. And all of him that was built upon it had to die before he could come to God. So in a broader sense, Paul's revelation about the law should be our revelation about what we take as our natural strength. So even when it isn't at the service of evil, at its very best, our natural self is a fleeting, broken, and misguided thing. In the Old Testament, for instance, the family is strongly emphasized. And young men and young women, children, they're praised for their virtues and their blessing to a household. But despite all the good there is to say, the scriptures speak to the limitations of the natural person, 
even at their finest. Psalm 34, verse 10, for instance, will say, even strong young lions, that's a nice metaphor for a young person, a strong young lion, sometimes go hungry, but those who trust in the Lord will lack no good thing. Or consider Isaiah chapter 40, verses 31, 30 through 31. Even youths shall faint and be weary. Even the young people, even those who have that boundless energy of youth, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. You see, in the end, those of us committed to our natural strength alone simply run out of gas. We cannot make good on the promises we make to ourselves about fixing all the leaky pipes, let alone about creating secular utopias for all of humanity. See, this realization led the poet T.S. Eliot to conclude his famous poem, The Hollow Men, some of you have read this poem, with these lines. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but with a whimper. By grace, Paul saw that the solution to this catastrophe of human frailty lay not in some change in routine or some fresh perspective, however drastic. The transformation required a much greater leap than that. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. You see, he had to put to death the one thing the natural man does everything for, himself. This meant a shifting of Paul's life principle, a recentering of the very essence and source of all of his vital energy. It was as if Jesus had to become dearer to him than the air that he breathed, more intimate to him than the sensation of each individual heartbeat. And from the moment of his transformation onward, his true nourishment in life would be not from food grown in fields or drink taken from a spring, but from living water and from the bread of life. There's a clip I'm going to direct your attention to in a quick moment, uh, but to kind of give you a context and introduce it. This is from a movie called Paul the Apostle of Christ. If you haven't seen it, it's a Tremendously well-done movie, in my opinion. It was released last year, and uh, it seeks to capture Paul in his final days. So it seeks to capture Paul uh, as he's in the Roman prison, and he's awaiting his execution. And Paul was executed by beheading. And there are some details that we aren't aware of, so the movie tries to fill in that narrative a bit. But in the course of the movie, as you will see, Paul ends up striking up something of a friendship with the centurion who is actually supervising the jail that he's in. And uh, in this clip, the centurion is aware that many of Paul's Christian friends were just sent to what he calls the circus, which is just a reference to the, uh, the Colosseum and the Christians who were sent there and 
either burned or torn apart by wild animals. And Paul and the centurion have a conversation, and you can capture something of what Paul is getting in these verses through that conversation. So if you could direct your attention to the screen for just a moment. I am sorry for Nero's circus. I am sorry your people died today. Have you ever been sailing? Yes. Imagine yourself looking out at the vast sea before you. You reach down and you put a hand into the water and you scoop it up towards you. Immediately the water starts leaking through your fingers until the hand is empty. That water is a man's life. From birth to death it is always slipping through our hands until it is gone. Along with all that you hold dear in this world. And yet the kingdom I speak of, that I live for, is like the rest of the water out in the sea. Man lives for that cup of water that slips through his fingers. But those that follow Jesus Christ live for that endless expanse of sea. Listen to me. There's only a moment. It's not me. It is Christ himself that looks upon you and shatters your defenses. And in that moment, you will understand that you are completely known by God. And you are completely loved. I will pray that moment comes for you. It's a brilliant scene. Uh, you can see the struggle of the centurion to kind of come to terms with what it is Paul's saying. But Paul makes reference to our life being like scooping up a cup of water and trying to hold it in your hands and watching as it slowly or rather quickly falls between your fingers. And that's the life that we all scheme and devise our plans and make all our maneuvers in, in this world around trying to hold on to and trying to preserve. And he says that life is nothing compared to the vast expanse of sea that knowing Jesus Christ frees you up into. See, our natural self rarely gives itself over to the transforming power of Christ, to, to that divine life without a fight. It will cling to every habit. It will cling to every would-be security. It will build up around itself a barrier of all these things before it goes. And it will sometimes even go so far to the point of rebelling against all that it knows to be good just so that it can claim independence of God, just so that we can stand apart and say, I'm my own person. I'm not going to submit. There's a man who is very well acquainted with this way of thinking. We're familiar with him in his older years and the philosophy that he produced 
the man's name is Karl Marx. Not many of us know much about him as a younger man, but as a young man, he wrote stories sometimes, and he wrote poetry as well. This is a poem of his that he wrote as a very young man. I believe he was around 20. And the title of the poem is Invocation of One in Despair. It gives you something of an idea of what to expect. But pay attention to the theme of independence of self, the willingness to do anything except for submitting to God. So, a God has snatched from me my all in the curse and rack of destiny. All his worlds are gone beyond recall. Nothing but revenge is left for me. On myself, revenge I'll proudly wreak. On that being, that enthroned Lord, make my strength a patchwork of what's weak. Leave my better self without reward. I shall build my throne high overhead. Cold, tremendous shall its summit be. For its bulwark, superstitious dread. For its martial, blackest agony. Who looks on it with a healthy eye shall turn back, struck deathly pale and dumb, clutched by blind and chill mortality. May his happiness prepare its tomb. And the Almighty's lightning shall rebound from that massive iron giant. If he brings my walls and towers down, eternity shall raise them up, defiant. That seems like someone who would revolve around himself as his own son. I think that poem indeed captures the spirit of despair, which is willing to lay ruin to one's own life just to defy God one final time. See, but the gospel of Jesus Christ will lay us low. It will make us humble in order so that it be God who lifts us up. Now, this is the beauty of it, because were the gospel a matter of primarily intellectual teaching or of special practices, it would make sense that others should come periodically in history to refresh, renew, or even add to the testament of Jesus. But in Jesus Christ, the message and the messenger are indistinguishable. In Jesus, God did not merely give us something he didn't merely give us a new teaching or a special set of spiritual powers and disciplines. He gave us himself. And if you do not understand this, you do not understand the gospel of Christ. In the book of Hebrews chapter 9, it states that Christ did not come to offer himself repeatedly. God did not come to earth so that he could do something temporary, that we were doing that already. He did not come to do that, but as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, 
In this, the sacrificial death of Christ, do we find merely an example to be followed? Certainly not. Certainly not. There is an example there, but if, it is, if that is all there is, then we would be saying with Paul, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If all that mattered were the example, Jesus didn't need to die. In fact, he didn't need to live at all. God could simply have passed down to us a story, a myth of this perfect kind of sacrificial life that we all should lead and charge us with living it out as best as we can. But that is just the old law with which Paul was all too familiar, rewritten again in poetic form. And it would not free us from our bondage to sin, our bondage to brokenness. Because it would still amount to us operating according to our own abilities. It would amount to us saying, see that story? See those principles? See those practices? Follow them as best as you can. Well, that was all that the Jewish law ever was. And we had multiplied it and multiplied it and multiplied it and tried our very best, and we'd reached that end. So we don't find just an example in the cross. We find a reality to be entered into. Again, pay attention to the text of the passage we just read. He put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Something dark and horrible was defeated that day on Calvary. Whether you or I or anyone else cares to recognize it or admit it, and something luminous and radiant cascaded into the universe through the empty tomb. It is a reality irrevocably established. It's a victory already won. It's an inheritance guaranteed for us and waiting. And miracle of miracles, because Jesus Christ took on our humanity, we can enter into the triumph of His divinity through His death and His resurrection. For we were baptized into his death. We were placed into the tomb with him. As Christ was brought back from death to life by the glorious power of the Father, so we too should live a new kind of life. If we have become united with him in a death like his, certainly we will also be united with him when we come back to life as he did. We know that the person we used to be was crucified with him was, and was put an end to sin in our bodies. Because of this, we are no longer slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. That's Romans chapter 6, verses 4 through 7. This is the beauty of these passages. The reality that's being spoken of is real already. It doesn't require you to do anything. There is nothing you need to do to make it happen. The reality is, is that you are free already. You're free right now. But the world doesn't want you to know you're free. And that's all the power it has left. All the power the world has left is a smoke and mirrors game just to keep you from making that final step and realizing that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you've been freed from everything that you were a slave to before. You see, the world cannot control those who know they are free and who know they are living in that reality. Before the coming of Christ, death was understood either as a tragic end to existence 
or just another link in the karmic chain of the universe. In either case, it didn't mean freedom from sin. Through Christ, death could become something that was profoundly meaningful. It was no longer a thing to be feared, no longer a thing to be avoided, or no longer a thing just to be acknowledged as a part of life, or something, heaven forbid, that you deserved because of the past lives that you had lived. No, death was profoundly meaningful after Christ, so much so that it became the path to eternal life. And that giving of eternal life, that is the heart of the offense of the gospel. That is what the world cannot and will not tolerate. A God who refuses to be domesticated into our petty systems, into our personal agendas. But don't be mistaken because the world is a crafty place. The world and those who serve it do not always reject Christ outright. That would be too obvious. That would be too, too glaring of a rebellion. But they will only accept so much of him. And look for these patterns. Look for these patterns in the world. Let him be a great teacher, perhaps the greatest teacher the world has seen, and a moral example for all. But let him be no more than an inspiration. Or let him be a social revolutionary, a mighty advocate for the poor and the oppressed, but never your king. He cannot be your king. Or let him be a mystical and a miraculous man, a wise healer and a source of spiritual power, but not the one through whom all things were made and through whom all things are being remade. Or let him be a prophet, a representative and a manifestation of God, but not God in the flesh. See, so long as Jesus remains any and only of these and countless other reductions, he can and will be accommodated by the powers and the principalities of this world. But that, ladies and gentlemen, is not the Jesus of history. It is not the one testified to in the scriptures. Consider Jesus' own words. He claimed to be exclusive and unique. He declared it with boldness. He said, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. He claimed to be a source of great division and to command singular devotion more than anything in the world. For do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find him. If you want to be a self-made person, if you want to find your life on your terms, you'll lose it, guaranteed. It's that cup of water slipping through your hands. But if you lose your life, if you give up yourself for the sake of Jesus Christ, he will return it to you with eternity added in. And he knew that others would compete for his place in our hearts. He knew that none could be placed beside him in our souls, for no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, 
or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And with great finality, he claimed to be the key to wisdom, freedom, and eternity, the narrow path which few would find. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, as G.K. Chesterton uh, marveled at the broadness and the depth of the character of this man called Jesus Christ, he notes in his book, The Everlasting Man, which is a tremendous piece of, of literature, it's a, a brilliant attempt at bringing together all history seen through the lens of Jesus. He writes this, There must surely have been something not only mysterious, but many-sided about Christ, if so many smaller Christs can be carved out of him. If the Christian scientist is satisfied with him as a spiritual uh, healer, and the Christian socialist is satisfied with him as a social reformer, so satisfied that they do not even expect him to be anything else, it looks as if he really covered rather more ground than they could be expected to expect. You see, For the disciples of Jesus, it was not a matter of him fitting into their lives. They were to be grafted into his eternal life. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus promises not only that we will have our life in him, but that he will come to live in us. Notice that, abide in me, our life is in him, and I will abide in you. Our life in Christ is a participation in the victory he achieved in his humanity over death and brokenness. His life in us is the power in this very moment to transform our present selves from creatures of this world to bearers of spiritual fruit. Once you come to understand this balance Abide in me, and I in you. This balance of the already and the not yet of spiritual life, you'll start to see it reflected throughout all the scriptures, all the New Testament. For an example, look how beautifully interwoven these principles are. The already, remember, the, the work that Christ has done through his sacrifice, eternally guaranteed, nothing we can do to add to it or take away, and the not yet, the transformative work to be done, the abiding of Christ in us. This is in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. And I'll try and highlight both of these as they play themselves out in this passage. Since then, you have been raised, have been raised with Christ already. Set your hearts on things above, not yet. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, already. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, not yet. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God, already. And when Christ, who is your life, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Not yet. See, I wish with all my heart that more Christians stood on the power of this twofold truth. I wish more churches preached it. 
Perhaps the world wouldn't be struggling in such a sad state as it is if we actually believed that through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, sin and death have already been defeated, that there is nothing we can or need to do to add to it, and that nothing can ever jeopardize this gift. I mean, man, if you're looking for a source of confidence, assurance, and peace, there you found it. And yet, there is still work to be done, isn't there? There's still transformations waiting to occur in our hearts. A glorious and beautiful purpose set out for us, each of us uniquely, to realize through Christ's abiding in us. And here we find the grounds for urgency, for exploration, and for creativity. We don't get to just sit back and say, well, the work is done. Christ already did the work. I have nothing, I have nothing left to do. That's the abiding in him. The work we have to do is him abiding in us in the present moment. And I think it's a beautiful paradox, really. Because Christ has won the war, we can at last start fighting our battles in earnest. And we all, with an unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. We're being transformed. Every one of us who has a heart that is open to the presence of God, who has a heart that has accepted the infinite gift that God has given. Now, what does this transformation involve? We're being transformed. Well, it involves partaking in the divine nature. You find that in 2 Peter. Second Peter, uh, he'll, he writes, we become partakers of the divine nature. And how can we possibly understand that from this perspective? I mean, it's all well and good for me to say that, but we're in this world so much. We're mired in all our circumstances. We have to go to work, and we have our obligations, and we have all the distractions of this world. What does it ever really mean to be a partaker of the divine nature? Well, one of the things the divine presence is likened to is fire. And for our final minutes, we'll explore what that might mean through a few passages. If you look to Mark chapter 9, verse, uh, beginning in verse 47, Mark writes this, and this is Jesus speaking, and if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. I read that passage for the first time this week. That's one of the coolest passages I've ever run across. That's a single verse. Everyone will be salted with fire. If, someone, if you're having a conversation with someone and then they ask you what your favorite verse is, pull that one out. It would be a great spark for a conversation. You know, uh, like, oh, in the beginning was the word. Oh, that's a good one. Everyone will be salted with fire. Yeah. <laughs> uh, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. Keep that passage in mind or keep a finger on that if you're following in your Bibles. Turn to Luke chapter 3, verse 16. This is about John the Baptist now. The people were waiting expectantly and were wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. 
John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, and he will burn up the chaff with inquenchable fire. What I noted about both of these passages is something very, very, very intriguing. In both of these passages, fire is mentioned as a form of judgment. It's the unquenchable fire that burns up the chaff, but it's also a form of blessing. That fire is spoken of right alongside as a salting and a baptizing fire. Salt is good. Baptism is good. So are there two fires then? I don't believe so. To put it simply, I would say that the fire of God's judgment is the fire of His grace. Why? We'll look to Deuteronomy 4.24. For our God is a consuming fire. The presence of God is the fire. And whether that becomes to us judgment or grace and infinite blessing is not a reflection of a change on the part of God, but of ourselves. If we are clothed in the life of Jesus Christ, if we can say along with Paul that it is no longer I who live, I'm not living on my own life principle anymore. Every breath I take and every ounce of my being owes itself now to Jesus Christ. I'm fully in Him and He is fully in me. If we are clothed in that life of Jesus Christ, God made flesh, the fire of God becomes approachable. It becomes a beautiful, illuminating light and an eternal warmth to our hearts. But without Him, left to our natural state, the heat and the brilliance would be too great to bear and we would wither away. But in Him and through Him, that very fire can become the essence of our new life, a flame that cannot be concealed, as it was for the prophet Jeremiah, who, as the case with a lot of the prophets, was scorned and mocked for exactly doing the will of God. Even in the midst of the pains and betrayals of mockery, he cries out to God, Jeremiah chapter 20, verses 8 and 9, so the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. You ever feel like that? No good deed goes unpunished? Exactly when you're trying to follow God the most, it seems like that's when you get kicked while you're down. The word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. But if I say, I will not mention his word or speak in his name anymore. I know we've all felt that temptation. I won't mention him anymore. I'll, I... It's too much trouble if I say that. His word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary of holding it in. And indeed, I cannot. See, once the divine fire has seeped into your very heart and bones, it cannot be kept hidden. God will light the dark places of the earth and he will warm the freezing souls of the world through you. But how many of you, how many of us actually want to be a witness to the truth in this world? 
You can go ahead and raise your hands. How many of you want to be a witness to the truth in this world? Do you know how the followers of Jesus Christ spelled witness? In the Greek, witness is spelled M-A-R-T-Y-R. That's the word, martyr. That's what the word witness means. Now, how many of us still want to be a witness? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Perhaps for some of you, Christ has only ever been an example. The paradigm that you have tried to follow as best as you can with all of the best of your natural abilities that you've found, all the resources that you could muster. And maybe for years you've desired to emulate him in every way, but you never felt that you could quite get to where he stands from where you are. It was as if a barrier was set between you and him. And there is a barrier. The barrier is you. So learn to let yourself go. It will feel at first like you're losing everything, but you're only losing what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. For Jesus Christ will return you to yourself, a new creation, alive and powerful. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, When you spoke through the Apostle Paul in his letters, he wrote once that when he first came to a certain church community, it wasn't with mighty and eloquent words, it wasn't with crafty speeches, but it was with a demonstration of God's power that he desired to know nothing else among those people except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Lord, I ask that through this vessel of my body, you have spoken something into the hearts of everyone today. I pray that your spirit would continue with us throughout the week, throughout the day, that you would enliven us, Lord, because church does not end when the service ends. It does not end at the threshold of the door, we remain a called out assembly. We remain your very body into the world. And I pray that that fire and that light would be kindled in the hearts of everyone in this room, Lord. That if there were but a few of us, if there was faith the size of a mustard seed, the great works that you could do in the world would be awe-inspiring, God. You would have spared 
Sodom and Gomorrah, if only 10 righteous people were there, Lord, well, let us be those righteous people through whom you will spare and show mercy to the world. I ask this now, Lord, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.